Good evening, everybody. This is a world view of history, and the date is September 15th, 2010. And this is Don Queen, as Bob Acosta, unfortunately, will not be with us tonight. Our book for discussion is American Theocracy by the political consultant and author Kevin Phillips. My question is that author and former Nixon administration official Kevin Phillips, in his latest book, American Theocracy, discusses what has been called radical Christianity and its growing involvement into government and politics. He makes the point that members of your administration have reached out to prophetic Christians who see the war in Iraq and the rise of terrorism as signs of the apocalypse. Do you believe this? that the war in Iraq and the rise of terrorism are signs of the apocalypse, and if not, why not? Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, The answer is, I haven't really thought of it that way. (laughs) Here's how I think of it. First, I've heard of that, by the way. I, I, uh, the, uh, I, I guess I'm more of a practical fella. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jack Cordes, president of Mellon Private Wealth Management of Northern California and the Commonwealth Club's quarterly chair. It is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Kevin Phillips, former Republican strategist, political analyst, and author of American Theocracy. Forty years ago, Mr. Phillips began work on his book, The Emerging Republican Majority. In it, he argued that the movement of people and resources from the old northern industrial states into the south and west would produce a new and more conservative Republican majority that would dominate American politics for decades. He joined the Nixon administration as a strategic advisor in the late 1960s to help foster the changes he predicted. In the time since, he has remained a prolific and important political commentator. He has worked as a contributing columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the Wall Street Journal. He was a commentator for the CBS TV News for several Democratic and Republican conventions and as a commentator for National Public Radio. Mr. Phillips no longer sees the Republican Party as a source of stability and order. He has written extensively about devastating cultural trends that undermined his earlier vision and have been made worse by the current administration. He is now a powerful, independent critic of the party and its abandonment of its own principles. Please welcome Kevin Phillips. I think that uh, introduction can safely be said not to represent the viewpoint of the Republican National Committee at the present time. Uh, what I'll try to talk about today will be the, uh, the ideas that are in my book, American Theocracy, the, the subtitle of which is The, uh, the Peril and Politics of uh, Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money. For the last two decades or so, beginning with economic issues, I've been looking at a comparison between the United States 
and the previous leading world economic powers, which you could describe more simply as, as empires, although that's not a perfect description of them, uh, and sort of what went wrong in those countries and what we had to look out for in the United States. And as I mentioned, it started really with economics. I could see that the, the parallels between the economic problems that dragged down these countries and the ones you could start seeing in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s was quite significant. But in the last decade or so, it's gone much, much beyond that. And as a result, part of what I do in this book is to look at the United States through the lens of what were really the five or six uh, major problems that you could see in the previous leading world economic powers. And they really are as follows. This is just a very quick overview of it. But the first was the sense that people always had that something was going wrong, whether it was called being on the wrong track or somehow losing touch with what the nation had been, you know, losing the old morality, the old patriotism. There was always some sense of something going wrong, generally interpreted differently by the people who were on the conservative side and those who were on what you could call either the progressive or, or liberal side. The second, and this is where it ties into one of the fundamental controversies, is that you can see a role of religion in each of these peak trajectories and then declines. And people will say, uh, obviously, this is a pejorative view. It is, in a sense, because what it says is that there comes a point where religion can go too far. And it's often been the case that that's happened in these trajectories. And it's happened in different ways. Uh, under Rome, when Gibbon wrote his famous book on the decline of the Roman Empire, it was that Christianity became a state church and the old sort of easygoing approach diminished and uh, tensions within the Roman Empire, which was already retreating, were exacerbated when Christianity became a state church and dissent wasn't tolerated. For the Spanish, obviously, they had the Inquisition. They harnessed the, the power of uh, Spain's might at that point in time in, in the 16th and early 17th century to, to the advantage of the Catholic Church and, and basically uh, lost a lot doing so. The Dutch, it's harder to explain, but if you go on with the British, what you get is a kind of moral imperialism and evangelical uh, Christianity and trying to bring the benefits of, of representative government and democracy around the world and they pretty much overdid it. And all of this has developed at a good bit more length. But the long and the short of it is there are reasons to look for these excesses of religion, whether it be a state church or whether it be a crusading approach to world politics or whether it be moral evangelism. All of these have been present. And I think they're clearly present today. Now, the third aspect in which the United States is beginning to match some of these previous examples was the one that I really got into first, which was what you can see in the economic side. And books that I was writing back in the 1980s and, and 1990s picked up on this. And very much what happens as a country attains this world stature 
It pays less attention to what it used to do as a nation, which is to say it's, it's early agriculture, industry, commerce, fishing, whatever you want to think of, which, generally speaking, as it flourished, had the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people. And what happens as any of these countries became the, the world force, I mean, even the Dutch when New York was New Amsterdam, they had uh, colonies all over the world and trading stations in Japan and sugar factories in Brazil and all kinds of things. But what happens is you get economic polarization, finance develops, a lot of services develop out of world supremacy, kind of globalization. And the upshot is you get more and more concentrating at the top in terms of wealth, less and less attention to these old things that the people used to do. And bit by bit, it gets to a dangerous level. And when something goes wrong with the economy, it, it's not the broad-based economy anymore. Now, the fourth yardstick to use here is that you get military and geopolitical hubris and overreach very easily documented in all of these. Uh, it's expensive. So the fifth thing is that you get debt. You get a major buildup in debt from all of these geopolitical insistences, pretenses, programs that people can no longer afford, and that becomes another major hallmark. And, of course, it increases the vulnerability of the country as things start to go wrong. Obviously, all of these things are going on in the United States today, and the question is, how much? And my argument would be quite a bit. Now, I suppose the last partial analogy, which it only works for Britain and for Holland, has to do with oil and energy. In the case of the, the Dutch and in the case of the British, they had an idiosyncratic uh, energy development that worked very well for them, and when the energy regime shifted to something else in the world, uh, they couldn't keep it. The, the Dutch, for example, wind and water were what they did so well with, whether it's reclaiming land from the sea or designing ships or windmills that became little factories. They were terrific at it. When Britain, which was essentially idiosyncratically attuned to coal, started to develop the, uh, the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom, and coal came to the fore, well, the Dutch just couldn't hack it in terms of international economic competition after that. The British with coal took over, and the British, in turn, were not able really to deal with oil. The, the first effort to bring Britain into a, a high stage of oil awareness was Winston Churchill because he was concerned about the British Navy. 1908, 1910, when he was first Lord of the Admiralty. Uh, not because of industry, even when I was at school over in Britain in the late 1950s and early 1960s, it was still a coal-based economy. Uh, they were not attuned to oil in the way they should have been, and the empire had a fair amount of oil, and they'd have been a lot better off if they thought in terms of oil. Now, what does this mean for the United States? In a nutshell, the United States is the country that has grown up around oil. It goes all the way back, not simply to drilled oil of the sort we know, petroleum, but even whaling oil. It may sound silly to say this, but whaling oil, in terms of illumination and lubricants and everything, was the forerunner of petroleum. 
And they developed enough of a market in the United States, so as the whales began to become difficult and expensive to, uh, to get, uh, the United States, being so attuned to this, that's where the first oil well was drilled in 1859. I mean, that's debated, but it was certainly the first major development by a, a nation in the United States built itself up around oil. World Wars I and II were won by American oil. Uh, the whole industrial pattern of the United States was built around oil. The whole residential pattern, where people live, how they, their transportation patterns around oil. The notion that as oil runs out for us and as we lose control over it, that the United States can maintain that world role without having the oil centrality globally that it's, it's had for so long and is, is losing rapidly now. There's just no evidence from the past that as oil slips uh, for us that we can keep up with something else. Now, let me turn specifically, just for a couple of minutes, to the notion that the war in Iraq was fundamentally an oil war and the botching of the war in Iraq was in many ways a very important miscarriage of U.S. energy policy. Now, in the course of the last year, both from uh, things that have come out about what Bush discussed and what he told people in Congress in his briefings, from analyses by economists, uh, even from the reactions of, of OPEC and a number of the other oil-producing countries, it's pretty clear that we paid a huge price in terms of their attitude towards the dollar and towards American oil needs. I mean, even the Saudis now won't, won't pump more oil when we, we want it. They, they feel they're probably running out, and why should they pump it at today's low price when it's going to be more expensive? Uh, former head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors under the Democrats, who then became the economist for the World Bank, Joe Stiglitz, computed with an associate that uh, when you added up all the costs of Iraq, you could probably make the case that 60, 70 percent of the change in the oil price between 2003 and, uh, and, and this past year, which is when he released his, his uh, calculations, the great bulk of this came from the, the fumble in Iraq for what's happened to the U.S. energy circumstances is catching hold. I spoke to a group of the, uh, the Democrats back last year and had some interesting conversations <clears throat> with people there who'd been at meetings with George W. and he was holding out. <laughs> One of the reasons why the Iraq war would pay for itself would be all, all the oil fields that we'd get access to. And he was busy discussing them and naming them. And, of course, this is at the same time as they're all saying oil has nothing to do with it. And they had Tony Blair saying oil had nothing to do with it. And uh, the only one who didn't say this was Dick Cheney. I mean, Dick Cheney could no more stand up and say oil had nothing to do with it. Than, uh, he wouldn't be credible. He's made too many speeches uh, that were too much to the point before he became vice president. But it's just an amazing thing to me, along with all the weapons of mass destruction miscalculation, the way the whole oil circumstance was made so much more difficult for the United States by this cocky incompetence. But let me move on to the next question now, which is radical religion. Now, part of what I had studied pretty carefully in uh, working up 
the emerging Republican majority, which was used in the Republican campaign in 68, and they actually distributed parts of it. So it was connected to their thought process, was that you would probably have more of a religious texture to the Republican Party after these changes took place in the electorate because you'd be pulling in huge concentrations of religious Democrats, Southern white Protestants, Southern Baptists, Evangelicals, Pentecostals, all the different variations that concentrated in the South within the Democratic Party, as well as Northern Catholic ethnic groups. Well, we didn't anticipate Obviously, the degree to which this was true, because partly the other thing that was happening was this massive backlash against secular, what the conservatives call secular humanism. And the country got steadily more religious and steadily more religious in the direction of evangelicals, fundamentalists, and Pentecostals. And if you look now at the the balance between the relative denominations, uh, those groups, evangelicals, Pentecostals, and fundamentalists, it's, it's, it's loose in terms of definition. But they basically outnumber mainline Protestants by about two and a half to one. And the change in the electorate in this direction has, such, has been such that the Republican Party became increasingly the party of Americans who attended religious services. It got to the point in 2000 and 2004, after slowly developing and then taking off during the 1990s, that about 70% of the people who uh, regularly attended church services voted for George W. And as this happened to the Democrats, they became more secular and less interested in religious issues, so the polarization developed a lot of force. Now, obviously, this is true in, in things having to do with foreign policy, because much of the Republican electorate uh, uh, has a, a, a biblical view of foreign policy. I say much, 30 to 40 percent. Uh, you get, in terms of Republican voters, especially evangelicals, a belief that foreign policy should uh, represent religious principles, too. You get a, uh, you know, obviously a focus on the Middle East as the Bible lands, where Armageddon and the end times are going to occur. And poll taken for Newsweek showed 45% of American Christians believed in Armageddon and the end times. And among evangelicals, it was in the 70s. So my guess was that roughly uh, 50 to 55, 57% of Republican voters for Bush would have answered that question that way. So what we get is this concentration of of voters in the Republican Party who have a religious view, in some extent, of foreign policy and of domestic policy and issues like abortion and evolution and stem cell research and uh, uh, even women's rights to a certain extent. Their view of the environment and geology is influenced by a biblical sense of creation. Again, there's a lot of this in the book. I don't have time to go through it, but the impact is profound. The first veto that George W. cast was on stem cell research, as you'll remember. So all of this has had a huge, huge impact on the Republican Party. And this increased after 9-11. And George W. back in uh, 1999 and 2000 had said he thought God wanted him to run for president. Well, by the time 9-11 came to pass, you'll all remember, and it's been written up widely, the religification of public dialogue, 
all the analyses of the increasing religious content of his speeches. Uh, obviously, he started taking it a bit more seriously, his own role in this, than he had before. And right after 9-11, there had been a uh, poll taken among religious right leaders in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia. And Pat Robertson just retired as the head of the conservative coalition. And these people were asked, who is going to replace Pat Robertson as the, uh, the leader of the religious right? And the answer from these people was, well, that there's not any question. God knew George W. Bush was the man who had to be in power when this happened. You know, God chose George W. Bush. Uh, you know, and they said sort of that. And I had, in just the title, American Theocracy, presupposes in the, uh, the hardcover version of the book, I'm talking about a broader definition of theocracy that included certain things having to do with the leadership. But, and I said, you couldn't really go much further than we had under this definition. But I should have picked up on... Uh, Another definition, a collateral definition, which is theocracy being a polity in which people either believe the leader speaks for God or the leader believes he speaks for God. <laughs> now, people will, okay, everybody's heard a little bit about this. And I'm not going to try to go into the details. Again, they're spelled out, but there were two situations in which he sort of expressed himself in this vein. One was actually shown in an interview on television, not him, but of the people he was speaking to, by the BBC in October of uh, 2005. And he had people from the, uh, the Palestinian cabinet. I mean, hard as it is to imagine, there's a Palestinian cabinet. And he spoke to them at Aqaba, Jordan, at a, at a meeting, and, and they quoted him. And they said this on camera, the BBC ran it. He said, God told me to strike Afghanistan, and I did. You know, God told me to liberate Iraq, and I did. And now God's telling me to bring peace in the Middle East. And when the BBC ran this, uh, then the White House got agitated, and they insisted that never took place. And at first, the Palestinians said, well, they didn't really think that he meant it that way, that he probably meant it that God had inspired him. But then the White House just flat out denied the interview had taken place. Uh, then the second one that fascinated me was in, uh, in 2004 in, in Pennsylvania. George W. went and had a meeting with the old order Amish. And after his meeting with the Amish, um, he'd gone into a, a barn with just these 40 or 50. And then they came out and the press asked the people who were in the meeting with George W. what, what he said. And they quoted him as having said, I, tr I trust God speaks through me. Without that, I couldn't do my job. And again, they, this was denied, but I could never find the name of anybody specific who denied it on the Internet. You, you could on the other one, but you couldn't on this. So my guess is that what you had was kind of a, a, a private theocratic self-imagination going on for a year or two in which he was sort of the voice. Uh, I'm not certain whether, you know, that was, you can't be certain it's true, but if it was true, it's hard to be sure whether he still thinks in that way. 
uh, he may be starting to think that there's you know, a lot of static on the phone and he wasn't getting the right information. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, you know, I, I take this seriously enough to raise it as something we should be concerned about. If, if he was obviously somebody who was a religious delusionary, you could have a committee under the 25th Amendment which could, could move to, uh, uh, it, it wouldn't be competent to be president. You could move on that front, the disability. But the, the arrangement set up makes it impossible. And when you have you know, people like the Democrats who are you know, not even just afraid of their shadow, they're afraid of the shadow of their shadow half the time. Um, not that it would have been easy, but there's no debate. There's no serious debate. None of this gets raised. So this is another aspect to me which is very difficult. The, the last aspect here has to do with, with debt. And the United States obviously has debt in every flavor you can imagine. I mean, it's like the old Howard Johnson's ice cream. Name all 28 or whatever it was. But we have more kinds of debt. It's not just the national debt. Private debt is, if anything, much more worrisome. It's, it's four times the size of the national debt. And it includes all these things that everybody's getting nervous about now in the economy, whether it's derivative instruments or subprime mortgages, or all these exotic forms of packaged securitized debt. But just let me give you one set of numbers so you get a sense of what's out there. Uh, back in 1970, Manufacturing accounted for 25% of the U.S. gross domestic product and financial services, which is finance, insurance, and real estate, the financial side of real estate, accounted for only 11. By the time we got to 2003, 2004, financial services were 20.5% and manufacturing was down to 12.4%. You're looking at a country which basically is a financial services country. A lot of the financial services involve debt. Debt that you know, nobody quite knows what it's going to mean. You can't even quite explain the structure. I'm sure there are a few people here from parts of the financial sector, and I think even a lot of the CEOs have no idea what these derivative instruments really are. And the whole structure of debt in the United States and how much of it's gone into finance and how little we know about what will happen if there is, in fact, a major credit crunch in the United States. Uh, I, I think we do have an extension of, of the stock market bubble in the form of a, a credit bubble, a liquidity bubble, whatever you want to call it. You know, he's going to be in there for another year and a half. What can happen? I don't entirely want to think about it either, so I'll stop on that note. Thank you. <laughs> Our thanks to Kevin Phillips. I'm Jerry Lubinow, Senior Fellow at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California. Uh, you mentioned uh, several quotes which one of our, uh, several of our questioners raised regarding Bush's uh, saying that God told him to do this or that. Um, but could you talk about uh, the extent to which that has informed his policy? Uh, do you see specific examples where uh, his, his uh, religious faith has affected his, his policy? Well, I would think that there would be clear evidences of this in the extent to which he loaded up all of his quotations vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iraq and, and 9-11 in 2002 and 2003 with religious overtones. I mean, I've got this in fair detail in the book. Uh, I can't go through, but people who analyzed 
this, some theologians would point out that when he said this, he was drawing on this and that part of the Bible. When he, he, he did this, he was talking about something else in Catholic social doctrine. When he did this, it was from him. Uh, and I was totally convinced by this. And it's, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that if he picked stem cell research for his one uh, veto, that he was influenced by religion on that, and he says so. Uh, his position on having a special court to deal with the Shivo situation, that was at the beck and call of the religious right. When uh, my book came out in hardcover on March 20th, 2006, on that very day, he was in Cleveland giving a speech, and the first question in his press conference afterwards was, did he agree with my argument that his administration was reaching out to the end times and Armageddon portions of the electorate. Now, he talked for four and a half minutes, and he never once mentioned any of those words and never took a position. Now, my feeling is he spoke for four and a half minutes because he was nervous, and he didn't want to just dump it, but he also didn't want to say anything. Because, in essence, if you go and you look at the polls, my conclusion was, and I mentioned this Newsweek poll, 45% of American Christians believed in end times and Armageddon, at least to some extent, so they answered the poll that way. I would say within the Bush coalition, it was like 50 to 60%. And were they mindful of this? Absolutely they were mindful of this. And... There just are a lot of different religious right leaders that will talk about meetings that have been held in the White House and, uh, and so forth and so on. One alleged that he was solicited for his view of the end times and how they were closing in. Now, it's very easy if the press want to deal with this. There are the names of eight or ten people from whom Bush has taken religious counseling, leaders, people who've written books. You know, and the last thing, and this isn't funny, but it's kind of sad. If you, there's a, a set of books called the Left Behind series, and these are the books about the uh, the end times, and they've sold a total of about 70 million in books and cassettes. And I can tell you, with somebody who writes books, 70 million boggles your mind. I mean, 700 <laughs> 700,000 is fabulous. 70 million. Uh, these books, for those of you who haven't had the distinct literary thrill of reading them, um, they include little things like uh, uh, the Antichrist is alive today and came out of the United Nations. He lives in New Babylon, which is in Iraq. He has a French financial advisor. Well, it starts sounding to me like stuff they wanted to make sure, bases they touched in the whole thing leading up to Iraq. There are even polls that show a lot of the, uh, the true believers thought that Saddam was the Antichrist. Well, I've played everything which Kevin Phillips had to say about religion. What kind of case do you think he made for America becoming a theocracy? In conclusion, I'd like to thank John and Tim for their technical assistance tonight, and let's open it up for discussion. I hope you enjoyed the book. Well, that was Ron. Sorry. Uh, thank you very much. Well, what did you all think about the book? I'll start because nobody else is. I think we may have a problem here um, 
about the religious part, since, since I'm unreligious, I don't have any trouble saying that I really believe what Kevin Phillips had to say, and I think we're limiting our, our choices, this whole stem cell thing, this life beginning with even before conception practically. I mean, these things to me are so unbelievably, unbelievably antedated that I, it's hard for me to relate to people who think that way. So I probably there's going to be a lot of reaction to this, and I'm willing to accept it. I just cannot buy into this religious doctrine that seems to be controlling how people, wants to control how people think. Well, did anybody uh, disagree with, with this uh, thesis uh, or the amount of evidence? I, I thought is, for example, where I didn't say he was had this quotes that he didn't quote, but he's talking about referring to parts of the Bible. But when you and then there was Catholic doctrine, and then you're taken from hymns. Well, you couldn't. I think you'd just say about anything, and somebody'd find somewhere there that it referred to some hymns or some Catholic or other uh, Lutheran or whatever doctrine. Well, I guess we. Covered that. I put took a lot of time. <laughs> took all the uh, what he's had to say about religion mostly, and uh, of course he's not not there now as president. So we're not don't have so much to worry about uh, becoming a theocracy. But the oil problem. I did anybody have any? Uh, uh, I think. Some people didn't like all the uh, inference about the Denmark and on the wind and the, the British on the coal and U.S. history and oil. Well, we got a talkative group. Harry, are you still there? <laughs> I read in uh, I was reading uh, from Slate magazine. Uh, uh, I, I, and he. The author there, and I think I hope I wrote it down, and he talked about the Phillips meth method is to begin a chapter with a uh, uh, boldly stated thesis uh, uh, to grab your attention, then go for about thirty pages with some pompous things of history. Do you think his style was very pompous? Well, we lost a couple. Well, any other comments on on the book? I, uh, if we don't, I will get to. Uh, I think I will get to discussing what we're going to have for next next month here. Um, uh, Jill, do you like the this type of book, or do you want? To, more biographies, or what was your interest in? Uh, I like the variety that we're having. Uh, yes, I like this type of book, but I also like the, the just plain history. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not terribly selective. I don't think if it if it's well written, which I certainly thought this book was. Um, I intend to read. I especially want to read the, his book about the the cousins. I. Uh, that he keeps referring to in this book because I haven't read it. But um, 
biography, as far as I'm concerned, is fine. Just plain history. And I never get tired of U.S. history. Some people do, but I don't. And But I'm, I'm open to any of it, really. Uh, I just think you do an excellent job of selecting. And I'm always amazed and, and very pleased about the material that you have to support what you have to say. I wish Kevin Phillips could be, could be here so we could talk to him directly, but I, I think you did a wonderful job of supporting his points of view. You know, I thinking about this uh, being here, because, you know, in the book, he was a little rough on the evangelical, and I'm not either, but if I were evangelical, I think I would not have been too happy with some of the things he said, but uh, I think he was a little bit... Uh, down on that, but uh, otherwise, and he certainly was rough on the Democrat, on the poor old uh, uh, Kerry. He, <laughs> he really gave him, didn't like, gave him a bad, I don't think he was that bad of a candidate just because his wife was rich and, and so on, and he belonged to skull and bones like Bush did. It would be interesting to know what he's saying now about the Obama administration that is getting so much flack and from my standpoint, it's the best administration we've had since, well, I can't even remember when. I, I think it's very sad that people seem to think nothing is happening for the better, and as far as I'm concerned, this whole health thing is certainly for the better. I like, except Clinton getting himself in all that trouble, and they were saying today that that's what, if it hadn't been for that, we, we would have probably had Gore for president, uh, which might not have been a good thing either, but uh, um, I I think we wouldn't have had Bush in, in that case and, uh, because that was very, very close. But, boy, you know, Clinton did reduce the size of the government and did leave us with a surplus, and uh, the, the, all the conservatives are mad at him still. You know, that I, I never could quite... They were just downright vindictive, but I guess that's another subject, and um, we gone. Uh, but uh, Kerry uh, just didn't fight hard enough, I think, or, and that's the Democrats' problem. They need to attack right back when they get attacked, and I think they're getting better at it, but I hope. Anyway, our, what I, our book for, um, for uh, October... It's called The Cold War, A New History, and it's by uh, John Lewis uh, Gaddis, uh, and uh, I'm reading one-handed here, so that's, uh, uh, and it's read by, uh, oh, Alexander Strain, uh, just like it sounds, S-T-R-A-I-N, it's about 10 hours, which isn't quite as, Bad and its number is DB six one five one one. If I can get my stream fired, the Cold War it goes from nineteen forty five to uh, ninety one when they made peace. It starts out uh, he he it starts out with the three speeches by uh, by uh, uh, Stalin and then uh, the famous uh, Missouri speech by Churchill and Fulton, Missouri, and then uh, the Truman Doctrine and how they fought the Cold War. And uh, he gives them quite a bit of history, and it's 
Uh, he's written six other books on, or seven other books on it, so this is kind of a summary of what, what he's written. And the earlier books, he does do a lot of analysis. The uh, Russians really believed the uh, stuff about uh, uh, the Marxian doctrine and that the war was in, they believed that war between the capitalists was, was going to be inevitable and then they would follow up and, and con conquer and this was all done. He also said that Khrushchev was kind of romant, uh, romantic, that the reason he put the missiles into Cuba was that he was so happy that, the, uh, that uh, communism had developed without much of their help in the uh, Western Hemisphere, that he wanted to help Castro all he could, and he put the missiles there. And, of course, got himself into us into a lot of trouble, and that was the closest call we had. It was re really re very scary. How do you spell Gaddis' last, you know, his last name? Yeah, okay. It's John, and it's L-E-W-I-S for Lewis. John Lewis Gaddis is G-A-D-D-I-S. And, uh, again, it's uh, DB61511. 61511. And uh, I was thinking of Hitler for November. Uh, I, uh, no, no, I was... Uh, it's the First World War. I was thinking the First World War for November, since that's Veterans Day. But uh, and that that I'll, how long was that one? There was a problem there. Oh no, that's only ten hours too. So uh, I think we'll probably go with that. It's the Hitler books that I have a little problem with their length. Could you read a thirty-two hour book in a month? It isn't the only book I'd be reading, though, and that's the problem. Both Hitler books, there's two of them, and that's no problem, but uh, the one is 47 hours, and that uh, we could not do in one month, but uh, then I says, well, maybe we'll skip December and make spell it, but uh, I don't know, that that's really spreading it out. But anyway, for, uh, for our book then for next month is The Cold War, and it's, it's a pretty good, good read, I, 